When Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, known universally as Lula, was first elected president of Brazil in 2002, it was a great plucky underdog story. Lula, who as a boy sold peanuts on the streets of Sao Paulo and had little formal schooling, who worked his way up through Brazil's trade union movement and who had lost three previous presidential elections, had claimed the big prize at last. And he made the most of it. Lula won re-election in 2006 and left office in 2010 only due to term limits, boasting a commendable record in reducing Brazil's poverty and consequently astonishing approval ratings. On New Year's Day, Lula was sworn in for his third term, but the Brazil that elected him, and only just last October, has changed a great deal, and so has he. The country is more divided and more rancorous, a fury most picturesquely demonstrated by immense riots in Brasilia earlier this month. And Lula is obviously older. He's 77 and since his first stint in the Palacio de Alvarada has endured both treatment for cancer and 580 days in prison on corruption charges, later annulled. Can Lula do it again? What ideas does he have about Brazil at home or abroad that he didn't have 20 years ago? And where does he even start? This is The Foreign Desk. Lula is trying to weed out some of the supporters of Bolsonaro, but we have to recognize, too, that it did take the federal military to come in and quell the protests. What we saw in Brasilia was the breaching of that divide between civilian politics and certainly the state police, military police, but also the military as well. And so I don't want to sound too alarmist, but clearly that wall has been breached to a certain extent. It's not that Bolsonaro is hard right and Lula is hard left. As you know, he's very much a pragmatic, and that's why he was a successful president for his two terms. Of course, a few things here and there, you know, he was redistributing money a little bit more, but for business people, it was excellent years. Brazil was growing so much. He's very much a capitalist at heart. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Well, I'm joined, first of all, by Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who is, as regular listeners will know, a son of Sao Paulo. Fernando, first of all, we should probably acknowledge that this episode is unlikely to constitute any sort of period of mourning for the demise of Jair Bolsonaro. What was your personal reaction when you learned that Bolsonaro had lost and Lula had beaten him, if only very, very narrowly? As a Brazilian abroad, Andrew, I think it was relief, to be honest, because, you know, I've been living outside Brazil for 15 years, but of course, I'm still very much attached to what's happening there. And, you know, from the moment I moved to London in 2006, Brazil always had an excellent image and goodwill from people, actually. We always had problems, you know, poverty, corruption, you name it, violence. So it's not that we were the perfect country, but we had this image of being, you know, good people. We kind of cared about the environment. There's been a lot of good things about Brazil. But after Bolsonaro, it's incredible. It's very hard to find a country that its image when we had quite esteemed opinion by many people. And the opposite happened during the Bolsonaro years. I can remember you saying during the World Cup, you were actually quite nervous about wearing your Brazil shirt in public for fear of being mistaken for a Bolsonarist. I was, and I was mistaken, actually, in the airport of Sao Paulo. I was was not even wearing the Brazilian kit, but a very bright yellow shirt. And an elderly lady, she looked at me and said, Bolsonaro with a smile. 
smile. I just wanted to hit a little bit from her because I was a little bit embarrassed. <laughs> so that's the division he created in Brazil as well. And again, I'm not saying here, of course, everybody has their own political preferences. I'm not saying Lula is the perfect candidate. There, no one is the perfect candidate. But he did cause a lot of damage in the country, and that's undeniable. But I blame also even the media for creating a figure like him. We never had since our, our redemocratization someone as polarizing as Bolsonaro. But I want to talk about that polarization and what it represents, because as, as you correctly point out, Lula and Bolsonaro, it would be difficult to come up with two more radically different characters with radically different politics. Is it as simple as saying that there is some duality of Brazil, that Bolsonaro and Lula represent one side of each? Yes, and I think that's why Bolsonaro was smart. Maybe this duality was always there, but hidden, or there were not can no candidates that would actually show that actually Brazil is divided. People living in the countryside, people working in the agricultural field, people even in the south region of the country as well. Those people, perhaps, they felt a little bit forgotten. It is very similar to what we see in the United States as a divided country. But I feel in Brazil, this is a new thing. People are realizing this now. So even in the latest election, in the state of Sao Paulo, where I'm from, I'm from the Sao Paulo city, the capital of the state, Lula won there. But in the whole state, Bolsonaro won because we have a powerful countryside and those people are more conservative and they believe the man, you know. And it's not that Bolsonaro is hard right and Lula is hard left. Lula mm. is not hard left. As you know, he's very much a pragmatic and that's why he was a successful president for his two terms. It's not that Brazil had a very sharp turn to the left. Of course, a few things here and there, you know, he was redistributing money a little bit more. But for business people, it was excellent years. Brazil was growing so much. He's very much a capitalist at heart. People shouldn't think it's hard left against hard right. That's definitely not the story here. This is my own personal unified mm. field theory of everything, that all the world's current populist struggles are, when you boil away everything else, essentially a struggle between the city and the country. It will become like that, and that's very sad to see, Andrew, because it wasn't like that mm. at all, actually. Especially, I'm talking since our redemocratization. But I can see this developing, and I can see, honestly, the United States influenced Brazil more than ever, the way they do politics there. It is such a shame, because as I said, it wasn't like that. As I said, the Brazilian football kit, I mean, literally, if you were a communist or a fascist, you could wear it <laughs> and cheer for Brazil in a very relaxing manner. But it is changing, and we have to wait and see. I mean, Bolsonaro, also his political power, I think, diminished quite a lot. I mean, it was quite embarrassing that he traveled to Orlando. He was not even there in Brazil supporting his own people that decided to invade the Congress in a way. So I'm not sure how strong he will be in the next elections. But I wonder if there will be someone else besides Bolsonaro that will represent this quite hard right that we have in Brazil. They didn't disappear. I mean, he almost no. won the election indeed. Not everyone would invade the Congress, I would say, from his supporters. I have to add that. But, you know, it is a remarkable power still to have 48% of a massive country like Brazil. We are going to be talking later in the show about the challenges and opportunities facing Lula as he returns to the presidency. But I want to go back to when he left the presidency the first time with extraordinary approval ratings for any point in somebody's presidency, never mind two terms into it. What was his secret? Why did Brazilians appreciate what he'd done? Well, you're right. I mean, he left power, I believe, with 87% of approval. I mean, we'll never see this number ever again, mm. in my opinion. 
You know, it's very simple, Andrew. Of course, people say that when he was elected in 2002, there was a commodities boom in Latin America, mm-hmm. and that's why we grew so much. Sure, I mean, that's definitely one of the reasons why he did well. But we should not forget that Brazil was actually a very poor country, even in the 90s. I mean, we started to get better in the 90s, but there was a lot of hunger even in Brazil. You know, it was quite devastating to see. And I think what Lula did with social programs like Bolsa Família Brazil never had a really strong social program like we have in Europe, for example. Mm. It completely changed people's lives, you know, in the poorest parts of Brazil. And those people, and I think that's why they still voted for Lula this year in in high numbers. And again, of course, it wasn't perfect. There were corruption scandals. The homicide levels in Brazil are crazy and they're still very high. I mean, they're one of the highest in the world. But I think that's why, you know, he left with 87% of approval. So what's your read then on why he wanted the job back? Because it was 20 years ago that he was first elected. He is now 20 years older. I mean, he's old by any definition. He's been extremely ill. What do you think's driving him now? Does he think there is still unfinished business? Did he just have that thing of thinking, I'm the only person who can beat Bolsonaro? Is it some sort of vengeance against those who didn't tip him out, but certainly tipped out his successor Dilma Rousseff the first time? Why does he want the job back? A little bit of that. Of course, I have a feeling that there is a little bit of a revenge there, you know, to prove to himself, I can do this. Mm. But to be fair, and and I have to agree with Lula on that one, I mean, Bolsonaro would have won the election if there was any other candidate that is not Lula. Brazil is a big country. I mean, and, and, and we do have young leadership, but I don't think they would have enough power, you know, to win this election. Because even our political system is not like the US, for example, which is Republicans and Democrats. We have 25 political parties in Congress. It, it, it's difficult. It is very, very difficult. But that's the reality that Brazil is facing. A lot of Lula supporters, I think they're just kind of mild centrists or even some center-right people. But they said, you know what, Lula is better than Bolsonaro in this occasion because we believe in democracy. Fernando, thank you. That was Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Joining me here in the studio to take a longer look at the challenge facing President Lula is Dr Christopher Sabatini, Senior Research Fellow for Latin America at Chatham House here in London. And joining us from New York is Cecilia Tornaghi, Managing Editor of America's Quarterly and Senior Director for Policy at the America's Society and Council of the Americas. Cecilia, first of all, let's go back to those extraordinary scenes in Brasilia earlier in January. Do we have a clear understanding now of how serious the riot was and who or what was behind it? Well, who and what is still, there are several hints of a lot of military people, different ranks, the police, but also external powers. But there's nothing proven so far. So the investigations are ongoing. There were several businesses that were supporting those campers that had been since the election outside the army quarters that were sort of like the head of the Hydra that started the process on January 8th. So there's a lot of evidence of individuals involved here and there, but there's also a lot of evidence surging. Every day there's one more element showing that this has been orchestrated for a long time. So there has been evidence that on December 12th, there was sort of like a dress rehearsal of some sort of riots in Brasilia the day that Lula got his diploma as president. 
So that was December 12th. That day there were riots, burning buses in Brasilia, and that was tamed down after the inauguration, which was the focus, right, for security. That day they didn't try anything because, of course, the security forces were there and they will be really hard to bypass that. But after on the 8th, what exactly they wanted to gain from that then is still being discussed, but apparently what they wanted to create was a situation in which the army would have to be called to quell the violence, which is a Brazilian rule called GLO. It's a guarantee of law and order that a president calls and in which case allows the army to take over public security, and that will be an effective coup. So apparently the idea is that they would create this situation where the president would have only one recourse, which would be to call this GLO, in which case the army would be in charge. Chris, a lot of parallels drawn unsurprisingly between those events and those of a couple of years earlier in Washington, D.C. But are you confident that that separation will endure in Brazil? Or can we indeed draw some reassurance from the fact that it was tested, Lula is still the president, and there doesn't seem to be any challenge to him from within the military? It's a good question. I think, first of all, Bolsonaro liked to refer to himself as the Trump of the tropics. And what we saw also was the Trumpism of the tropics. Mm. It was Trumpism with a Latin American flair, with the idea of staging an old-fashioned Latin American coup, whereas before the insurrection of 2001, January 6th, was about trying to interrupt the vote-counting process. They were calling for the military to intervene. And indeed, as Cecilia said, this had been planned for a long time. We we're finding out who the who is, but we do know what the what is, and that was deep social distrust, the use of social media to flame this distrust and anger and even fear about what a Lula presidency would mean. Consequently, what we also see now is that there is an attempt, and it was rumored before, to try to stoke insurrection in one state, but probably in the future in other states, in which the hope was that the military police, which are controlled by the state, would stand down or at least allow it to rage. And then the overall military, the federal military, would have to intervene. That was clearly the plan that had been rumored for a long time, even before the elections. And that clearly was what we see in that executive order that was in the justice minister's desk when they, they invaded it. They broke in. So is the military in politics for good now? I don't think we've passed the fever, if you will. Obviously, there are elements within the military that remain loyal or sympathetic to Bolsonaro. If indeed the past rumors are to be true, and indeed I think January 8th improved there was an element of truth to them, that the idea of staging insurrections state by state and states sympathetic to Bolsonaro, and just as a reminder, it was the, the state security secretary in Distrito Federal, which is where Brasilia is, had been Bolsonaro's justice minister and had probably not coincidentally been in Florida during the insurrection. So there's clearly a pattern here. And in terms of the military, clearly Lula is trying to weed out some of the supporters of Bolsonaro. But we have to recognize, too, that it did take the federal military to come in and quell the protests. And when the military come on the streets, even if they're doing it in response to a presidential directive, in which we don't even know where all of their loyalties lie. That's never good. What we saw in Brasilia was the breaching of that divide between civilian politics and certainly the state police, military police, but also the military as well. And so I don't want to sound too alarmist, but clearly that wall has been breached to a certain extent. 
Cecilia, the investigations, recriminations and retributions about the Brasilia riot are continuing, but while they continue, what I really wanted to do with this show was look ahead to, depends how you count these things, either Lula 2.0 or Lula 3.0, and it's quite easy to lose track of how many attempts he's had to become president. It was 20 years ago that he first became president. How different a challenge and how different a country does he face? Very different. It's a completely different Brazil. And I want to add to what Chris said leading to this is just for the last four years, we've had a constant, constant training, so to speak, with alternative truth is an alternative reality of what Brazil is. So a lot of people are convinced that our electoral system isn't trustworthy, that the entire political system isn't trustworthy, especially the Supreme Court. There was a lot of pounding on and sowing doubt about the institutions and the people serving at those institutions for the last four years in a relentless manner. That has created a parallel world of information that does inform a large part of society. So when Lula first took office in 2002, people were afraid that he was a socialist, a communist that was going to take over and bring socialism to Brazil. He proved himself to the markets. Everybody was happy he left office with 80 plus percent approval rate. Now we have a Brazil that is not facing a commodities boom, not facing China um, parallel growth spurt that happened in the early 2000s. We're facing a world that is way more polarized beyond Brazil, war in Europe. So it's not only the domestic reality is divided with a good portion of the country believing that Lula is illegitimate, but also in outside scenario that is definitely not the rosy scenario that we had in the 2000s. And Chris, added to those considerable headwinds that Cecilia diagnoses there, does Lula himself strike you as in any way a diminished figure? I mean, there's a number of factors, I guess, mitigating against him here. Obviously, he is, by any definition, an old man at this point. He has served a prison term in between presidencies, albeit that the charges were annulled, quashed, etc. And he doesn't have the novelty value he did. He did seem in 2002 a relatively or perhaps counterintuitively fresh face with fresh ideas. How much of that Lula isn't there anymore? Physically, you can see it. First of all, his after throat cancer and a surgery, mm-hmm. his voice is much more gravelly. He's losing his voice. During the campaign, it was effectively diminished at the end. Que Deus sempre foi muito generoso comigo also you know he just looks older he isn't that aggressive in a positive way trade union provocateur that i think captured the imagination of many and his myth is tarnished as well i mean he was a man that was raised by a single mother who only had a fifth grade education who had risen through the ranks of factories to form and union membership to form the workers part of the pt there was that myth around Lula when he was inaugurated in 2003 that's deeply tarnished because of corruption, but also simply because of now his age and the fact that he has an exit. In fact, I would argue one of the unfortunate things about this election isn't so much that Lula is elected, but it is that Brazil needs new faces. We pitted basically two of the most inflammatory leaders 
polarizing leaders in this election. And yet there's a whole new generation within Brazil's political class that probably should be represented. It's much more centrist. So that's the issue. But you know, in terms of his own, what he faces now, he's really has very high negative political ratings, in part because of the corruption associated with his time in power. Obviously, also because of his own, as you mentioned, sort of dismissed, but still consequential year and a half in prison for corruption charges. And it's a different Brazil. Silly was saying, you don't have the commodities boom. Economic growth has been flatlined. And as you say, he's an old man. He's 77. And he's, for many people, he's seen as being part of an older generation, the generation that brought in, thankfully, democracy in 1985. The question is, who are the new leaders that are going to fortify and really recast, if they can, Brazilian politics? Is it possible, Cecilia, that possibly because of those reasons that he might govern in a rather less restrained fashion than he did the first time? Because for all that he ran and was eventually elected as a left-winger and as a socialist, and he is obviously both of those things, it is a strange curiosity of successful trade union leaders who become successful politicians often end up governing in a fairly pragmatic, pro-business fashion, basically understanding that if the owners aren't making money, the workers sure as hell aren't going to either. Is it possible that he may feel Tempted, especially as he has said this will be his last go at it, to govern for good or for real in a, a less restrained fashion? I think that Lula wants to prove himself. I think he wants to come back and actually rebuild Brazil and put it back on its track, as he keeps saying. What will hold him and restrain him in a certain fashion would be his dream of being out of office with the same 80% plus uh, approval rating that he once had. So he will try to bring that together by bringing as much investment as he can and trying to grow the internal markets and grow Brazilian companies. The thing is, he's going through the same old ideas, apparently. We're seeing him already saying about using the development bank to push uh, Brazilian companies working outside Brazil borders, which, of course, has created a lot of noise internally because of the defaults we had doing this before in his previous term. So the ideas don't seem to be that new. But the pragmatism is likely to stay put just because he can't afford to pick more fights than he already has internally right now. He does not have support from a good portion of the country that is, as Chris was saying, really doesn't trust him at this point. I want to talk a bit now about Brazil on the world stage, but we'll start by talking about Brazil as a major regional player, as it obviously is. Chris, you were talking about how there hasn't been, at least as yet, that rise to prominence of the next generation of Brazilian leadership. But elsewhere in Latin America, we have seen that new generation coming through, a new generation of left-wing presidents. One thinks, obviously, of Gabriel Boric in Chile, Gustavo Petro in Colombia. How do they perceive Lula? Is he a kind of inspirational figure or, or yesterday's hero? I think they see him as a hero, but I think they see him with a certain wariness. Brazil has always tried to project itself as a regional power, as a global power as well. And it is with the country of more than 200 million people and the largest economy in the region. And 
the economy of Sao Paulo, for example, is pretty much the same size as the economy of Argentina. So it dwarfs the other countries. And so I think they see it with a little bit of trepidation that it is the 800-pound gorilla in this. But having said that, they see it as a certain rallying point. They see it as a moment, as a wave, rightly or wrongly. They would certainly prefer Lula to Bolsonaro, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, Bolsonaro was, as we know, was irascible, just brazenly ideological. He was not a partner. So I think in this sense, and, and really in their bones, Latin Americans really cherish the idea of Latin solidarity. And Lula does represent that. Now, it's solidarity a la Lula, but you know it does sort of capture this moment that they want to sort of resolve regional problems and assert themselves globally. Cecilia, Lula always clearly had ideas about Brazil being a global power commensurate with its size and its influence and its extraordinary possibilities. It was on his watch that Brazil bid for and won the World Cup and the Olympics. Does he have a clear sense, though, do you think, of what kind of power he envisages Brazil being globally? He is stating it at every turn. He had was in Argentina just now for the CELAC, the group of Latin American and Caribbean nations that is sort of like the OAS without the US. And uh, he went in saying, we're gonna fulfill the dream of Bolivar and San Martin. And one local paper said the Bolivar of the 21st century is here. So he's definitely looking at regional integration at being, you know, Brazil is back was his motto. And he definitely wants to bring Mercosur, Unasur all back and reinforce the region using the tools he has at his hand, which is including the development bank, but especially the Amazon issue and bringing the uh, Amazonian bordering countries. Of course, Brazil doesn't have all of it. It's the bulk of it, but there's, you know, a portion of the Amazon in our neighbors. So the idea is to bring those together and use a lot of that cache, so to speak, of that currency at the global level for these countries to come together and do something about the environment and use that at some point as their leverage globally with Brazil, of course, serving as leader. And if I may say what Chris was saying about how he is seen, the reception he had in Argentina was that of a rock idol. Vamos juntos recriar o Mercosul e fortalecer o Mercosul. Inclusive com a participação da Bolívia entrando no Mercosul. Before singing his campaign song slogan on the streets, it was really incredible. There were like moving images of concerts and interestingly, Fernandes Lula at a concert with Eva Morales. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk shortly about the environment, but Cecilia, I just wanted to pick up quickly on one prospect that was raised by that visit he has made to Argentina, this idea of some sort of currency union between Argentina and Brazil. And what our listeners cannot see is that you're already laughing before I get to the end of the question. Is that going anywhere? We don't have to spend long on this. Well, there was a lot of like, oh, an Euro Sur, be it Euro Latin America or South America, it's just not happening, of course. But there's something to it, which is was expelled out by uh, the second in command at the Ministry of, of the Economy, which is, you know, they're starting a working group to discuss a potential currency or tool for trade. So alone as a trade tool, it kind of makes sense. Argentina, you know, is low in dollars. They have a difficulty. And for Brazil, it would be good to be able to sell more. So having some kind of tool that can help do regional trade with using this common currency could make sense. 
would take a long time for it to happen, but it's definitely not something that would be used domestically by any of the countries, not in this century per se. We could get there at some point. Right now, it's just like completely absurd. Argentina has, you know, 95% inflation and Brazil is at 10. It's unreasonable to even consider that. Chris, to move on to the environment slash climate, this is obviously a metric by which every national leader in the world is now judged, and quite rightly. But when you're the leader of Brazil, the stakes are rather higher, and the whole world has every reason to take an extremely close interest in the environmental approach of whoever's leading Brazil. If he has to make a choice, which side would he come down on? I think he's bound by his constituency, his promises, his international alliances to respect climate commitments and to try to roll back deforestation. Having said that, it will be difficult for him because of domestic considerations. It's been four years in which basically Bolsonaro just opened up the floodgates and allowed very unsavory groups. We're not talking you know, the traditional meat packers and what have you. These were illegal loggers, illegal miners, illegal land seizures. It's become a lawless area. And so trying to claw back that territory and reforest and even trying to stop their progress into the Amazon is going to be very difficult. It will bring a number of conflicts. And this is an area that has been, let's just say, very low in terms of state presence and the rule of law. And so he's going to have to confront not just halting the progress, but trying to claw it back. And that's going to be very, very difficult. And it will pit him against Bolsonaro's most diehard supporters. It will pit also the local military police and the military against some of these elements. It's not going to be very pretty. Having said that, I have no reason to doubt his commitment to the climate package, in part also because, you know, just as he was a rock star, as Cecilia was saying in Buenos Aires, you know, when he, he's going to do a tour soon of Europe, he's very much enjoys the international spotlight. He loves being the man of the moment. And I don't think he'll back away from that. And of course, he's got an environmental minister who's really very committed, Marina Silva, before had resigned because of his refusal to sort of back a much more strident pro-environmental position. So I think he's going to be committed to it. It just won't be a pretty process. Chris and Cecilia, thank you both. That was Dr. Christopher Sabatini from Chatham House and Cecilia Tornaghi, Managing Editor of America's Quarterly. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Finally on today's show, Lula has already signalled one point of difference between himself and his predecessor. Under President Jair Bolsonaro, miners and prospectors were encouraged to try their luck, legally or otherwise, in the territories inhabited by Brazil's indigenous people. Last weekend, Lula visited the beleaguered Yanomami people of Horaima State and declared a public health emergency. Lula's new cabinet also contains Brazil's first ever minister for Indigenous peoples. Well, I'm joined now by Shara Shanka, a human rights campaigner for uncontacted tribes at Survival International. Sarah, first of all, can you tell us a bit about Survival International and what you do? Survival International is the global movement for tribal and indigenous people's rights. So we fight alongside tribal and indigenous peoples around the world to defend their lands. And Survival was founded in 1969. We've been doing that ever since. 
One of the Brazilian tribes that has been in the news this week is the Yanomami. These are people who, as recently as the 1980s, were more or less uncontacted by the outside world. But Brazil's new government has been forced to step in and airlift 16 of them out of where they are in Horaima State. They are literally starving. Lula has declared a public health emergency. And they're not the only ones. But if we focus on the Yanomami, how did they get into this state? Yes, so the Yanomami are an indigenous people living in northern Brazil and southern Venezuela. And when their lands are protected and intact and there are no invaders there, of course they are self-sufficient people and the best guardians of the Amazon rainforest where they live and they hunt and they fish and they collect fruits and honey in the forest and they plant vegetables in their gardens. And that's their way of life. And there are also some uncontacted Yanomami. Alongside the Yanomami communities who do have contact with outsiders, there are uncontacted Yanomami who avoid all contact with outsiders and who are some of the most vulnerable peoples on the planet. In the 80s, there was a massive gold rush and thousands of illegal gold miners invaded the Yanomami territory. There were estimated to be around 40,000 illegal gold miners there at that time. And their territory had not been officially demarcated as an indigenous territory. So the Yanomami, led by Davi Kopenawa Yanomami and his relatives, and the pro-Yanomami commission in Brazil and survival on the global level, launched a campaign which ended up being a 20-year campaign for the demarcation of the Yanomami territory. That then happened in 1992. So on the Brazil side of the border, the Yanomami's land was officially recognised and mapped out as an indigenous territory in 1992, which means that it's for their exclusive use and invaders must be kept out by government teams. But, of course, in recent years, gold miners have gone back in again, having been evicted previously. And that has got much, much worse under the government of Jair Bolsonaro. So over the last four years, what we saw across Brazil, really, and especially in certain territories, including the Yanomami territory, was a massive increase in the destruction of the Amazon rainforest and other forests, other biomes as well, home to indigenous peoples around Brazil. And that was, of course, encouraged by President Bolsonaro and his allies in agribusiness who wanted to open up these extremely biodiverse territories for exploitation to make profit. Is it possible to quantify how much damage was done, though? We're seeing some of that impact in the fact that some of these previously self-sufficient people are now literally starving. But how big an area of Brazil are we talking about? Yeah, this is the largest indigenous territory in Brazil, It's twice the size of Switzerland, so it's a large territory. Of course, that is the the Aramami's ancestral territory, so it's completely right and it's written into the Brazilian constitution that that territory needs to be theirs. But there are many anti-Indigenous people, including Bolsonaro and his allies, who spread messages saying, no, this is too much land, you know, too much land for these people. We need to use this land for profit. But actually... What that means is potentially wiping out whole peoples because especially the uncontacted Yanomami, like the other more or less 100 uncontacted tribes around Brazil, can be completely destroyed 
if their territories aren't kept free of invaders because they depend completely on those lands for their survival and any forced contact by outsiders can kill them either by disease to which they have little immunity or violence and in the case of the Yanomami the contacted Yanomami the ones who have contact with outsiders what we're seeing now is devastating rates of illness and malnutrition as a result of the illegal gold mining there. Yanomami children are dying from malnutrition at a rate 191 times greater than Brazil's average. And that is a humanitarian crisis. The companies that have been helping themselves to the Yanomami's land, how powerful are they in Brazilian politics? They are powerful companies, powerful ranchers and politicians. And of course, that power has been boosted under the Bolsonaro government. What we see is that often there are very strong links between the big ranchers who are occupying indigenous territories in some parts of the country, especially south of the Amazon, in fact, lands of the Guarani, for example, almost all of their land has been stolen to make way for agribusiness. So you go there and you see seas of soya and sugarcane and cattle. The ranchers occupying those lands are very closely linked to local and federal politicians. Sometimes they are the politicians themselves. So it's a really fierce situation there. How different was this during Lula's previous government? His contention, as I always understood it, was that there didn't have to be any kind of conflict between protecting Brazil's environment and improving Brazil's economy. He indeed seemed to think that protecting the land was in itself ultimately an economic benefit. Yes, I mean, during Lula's previous presidency, the situation in the Yanomami territory was better than it has been over the last four years. That's not to say it was perfect. Of course, there were invaders there at the time and the Yanomami and indigenous organizations around Brazil and survival and other allies. We've been saying for years during the Lula government, the Dilma Rousseffi government, the Temer government, the Bolsonaro government, we've been saying all this time that the invaders need to be evicted from the Yanomami territory and all other territories in Brazil. The difference is the scale, I'd say. Under Bolsonaro, really what we saw was an extreme increase in the level of deforestation and in the level of invasions of gold miners there. And that wasn't just in the Yanomami territory, but across Brazil. And of course, now Lula has visited the Yanomami area a few days ago, and he called the situation a genocide, which is important because that is most definitely what it is. And we hope that Lula and his team will put their promises into action and urgently take action to evict the illegal gold miners and to send in enough health teams, the health teams that are required to uh, look after the Yanomami and to prosecute those who have profited from the illegal invasions of these territories and dismantle the criminal gangs, clean up the supply chains as well and do the same for all indigenous territories across Brazil, especially those home to uncontacted tribes. How big a task is that going to be, though, in terms of evicting these people and breaking up those supply chains? This is going to be a significant police and possibly military operation, isn't it? Yes, indeed. It is a big task. And, of course, it will require several government institutions to work cohesively. It requires... FUNAI, the Indigenous Affairs Department, it requires the police, 
the Ministry of the Environment. It is a big task. It requires a lot of political will and a lot of resources. However, we know it's possible. It's been done before and it must be done again. And that's not asking too much. It's just asking for the Brazilian constitution to be upheld, international law as well. And Lula and his team have made very good signs of wanting to do the right thing for indigenous peoples, including the Yanomami. At the same time, there are lots of anti-indigenous Congress people who have been elected, who are fiercely against any such moves and who will try to block them. So indeed, as you say, it's not necessarily an easy ride, but a very necessary one. Sarah Shanker at Survival International, thanks very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.